G'day and welcome to Leaders of Men. I'm your host, Nick Warner. In a society that yearns for legitimate male role models, I speak to men that are forging the pathway to a healthy, integrated masculinity. Today's guest is a long time coming, my Aussie brother, Jaguar Hart. Jaguar is a holistic therapist that specializes in shifting and eliminating subconscious limitations through linguistic physics. And if you want to know what that means, go check out his Instagram and get into some of his writing. He's an absolute poet. I hope you enjoy. The function of leadership is to produce more leaders, not more followers. Leaders of men. Jaguar Harp, my brother. Nice to have you on. Good to be on, man. We finally got here. I know we've been trying to organize this for a bit, but um, we're here, man. We're here. It's, uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. So, <clears throat> question one, what does masculinity mean to you? Yeah, it's a good question, that one. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there in the polarity movement and stuff like that. And we have, you know, a lot of definitions of, you know, integrity and groundedness and presence and things like that. A big one for me is virtue. I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. Um, And so virtue for me is my number one. You know, we can throw out, you know, pretty standard things like, yeah, grounded president, you know, integrity and creating structure and master of space and time and all that sort of stuff. But I like the old school, you know, the real traditional, strong, masculine men that were in, in history as the greatest thinkers of our time. Virtue for me, which is is founded in good moral character, you know, be the person that you wish to be, control your thoughts, control your mind. You know, the Stoics had a, a big philosophy around don't worry about trying to control everything, just control one thing and that's the mind. And, you know, in the masculine energetics, it's very much about reason and logic. And I'm a big fan of being very reasoned, very logical and making decisions from a sober mind from the place of good character so to me masculinity really represents virtue once you live a life of virtuousness and the upward spiral so it's like conscious creativity upward upward spiral virtuous cycle right we're operating in the higher frequencies then rather than um, a vicious cycle which is a downward spiral so i'm more of the virtuous cycle live a life of virtue good moral character that's really what i believe is the foundation for masculine principles for me so there's a nuanced difference between virtue and integrity Mm -hmm. so integrity i think is well integrity comes from the word integer which comes from the word entire which means wholeness okay so the opposite of an integer is a fracture or a fraction sorry so if we look at our personality when we're in integrity, we're actually in wholeness. So I find integrity about speaking the truth. When you're not speaking the truth and you're not in integrity, then you'll start to become fractured to yourself, just the same as a fraction of a number. Whereas virtue for me is good moral character. Integrity will be a byproduct of it, but the foundations of a good moral character, reason, logic, virtue, you know, the strength of being a man through good character, saying no when you need to say no rather than saying yes. These are the sorts of things that I find are the difference between virtue and integrity. 
Beautiful. There's a concept, it is better to be good at being a man than at being a good man. Mm -hmm. It's good, where's that from? I read it first in The Way of Men by Jack Donovan. Yeah. Um, And then it was just, it kind of got me thinking, like, is it better to be good at being a man or is it mm-hmm. better to be a good man? And well, um, I think, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, he, he goes into the fact that you can be a, so I think he describes it in, the, in uh, you know, you can be a good man in the Serengeti, but you can't hunt, you can't start a fire, and you're pretty yeah. much useless. You can be mm-hmm. a good man in New York City, but you can't provide for your family and you can't change a fucking a, a leaky pipe. Yeah. So it is far better to be good at being a man first. Yep. Yeah. And then work on being a good man. And that's where I was going to go with it. That just because you're a good man, you might be a people pleaser. You might have all the right, say all the right things and do all the right things. You know, you could present to the world as being a good man. But what's going to happen when things get really hard and we're in that place at the moment in society? Hard times create strong men. And a strong man, and a, a being good at being a man will do the right thing regardless of what's happening around him. And we're seeing this in the world at the moment as an attack on masculinity and all out assault on it. And so being a man these days, it, it needs to be redefined. We need to learn to do the hard things, you know, and in old tribal days, being a man was categorized into one of three groups, the farmer, the hunter, or the warrior. And that's just basically been lost because we want to have these good men like these emotional men these vulnerable men you know that create safe spaces and you know open up about everything to their women and all that's doing is creating a lot of feminized men now they might be seen as good men doesn't mean that they're not good men by any stretch of the imagination but they're not going to be good at being a man and there's a huge distinction between those two and society wants us to be good men which basically means we're acquiescing what it means to actually be a man to take the role of being a good man based on social constructs and social conditioning. Can't you be all of it? Can't you be the warrior or the hunter, but also be able to be connected to your, connected to the heart and hold your, you know, be vulnerable at times when it's required and this kind of thing. Absolutely. But I don't think that we should sacrifice being a man for just being a good man. You know, I think have it all, you know, there was a a cool meme ages ago. It said being a gentleman isn't always being having someone else's back. It's having your own back. So then you can have someone else's back. Right. And it was, it was something like that. I can't remember. I probably butchered it there, but the point is, and I wrote about this around being a gentleman, you know, the being a gentleman is being a good man, but being a gentleman, you know, he honors, honors his woman, he provides, he protects, he presides, which I think Ryan Mitchell, Um, says that and I think that's really important because you can still be a good man to your woman you can still take care of her but you can still be good at being a man by doing it rather than what sort of happened in this red pill culture where being a gentleman is being equated with being a simp you know the simp for people that don't know is these manipulative men that exploit women to get sex by pretending to be the good guy or the nice guy 
And I'm much more of the gentleman or the gent style approach when I'm with my woman. Like I open the door for her. I like to pay for things. I like to take her out. You know, I'll pick her up and take her on a date, things like that. That's still being a good man, but it's also being good at being a man at the same time and not categorized into these weak males or being a simp because of that red pill sort of doctrine that's out there, which I think is actually becoming pretty toxic. Yeah. And I think it also, I think the problem that a lot of people have had from the past is that there needs to be that middle ground because yes, the nice guy, the simp is as dangerous as the toxic masculine that everybody's kind of fearing the warrior, the hunter or the farmer without the connection to the heart is kind yeah. of what is feared and is what is, it's the reason that people have, there's a bit, this movement to push them to the other side, but either are as dangerous and it's this uh, integrated middle ground that is what is desired and what you speak of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you look at the, the modern warrior would be sort of the MMA fighters, I think. And I'm much more in that category. I love martial arts, I've done jujitsu for years. I've wanted to be a professional fighter. The term that they have for the fighter that keeps going is that guy's got a lot of heart, right? So he taps into that and keeps moving forward. The hunter will do, you know, a sacred kill. They thank the animal, you know, they thank the process of which which with which they go through they use all of the animal from the skin the organs they eat all of it by tapping into their heart for that the farmer gives thanks to the land you know they appreciate the land they cultivate it with respect and love and admiration for the bounty that it's providing and i think these are the really important qualities of being the savage but being a savage from the heart at the same time beautiful what's the most important thing for a 12-year-old son to know? Ah, that his father is a source of support, safety, and security for him. That's what I think. That's what I see. I see a lot of... It's unfortunate, and I had this conversation with a woman online, where women are thinking that it's their responsibility to raise strong boys. And I said, no, it's not. It's your job to provide the home. The man provides the house. The woman provides the home. It's your job to love and nurture him. The man is supposed to provide the strong boy. And I think for a 12-year-old, you know, also it's important for them to do hard things, you know, rather than playing Pokemon Go and vaping or whatever and watching porn and video games and stuff like that now. You know, I was out, like, I was boxing when I was 12 sometimes. I was out doing stuff i was skateboarding i was physical i was in i was playing rugby union things like that like that just seems to have gone and so if i had a 12 year old son i'd be doing jujitsu with him you know i'd be teaching him the ways to tap into his emotional intelligence and find a strong male role model if you don't have one that's what i would say to a 12 year old boy we need fucking need strong male role models for young boys these days because when they don't have that all the love and respect to single mums doing it, but there's a lot of issues that happen with males later in life, teenage years through to adults, if they're raised only by women. Yeah. That's one of the biggest issues in this society is in the broken homes where the, the boys get raised by women teaching them how to be male. A lot of women message me and say, I'm a single mother. The father is just not up to scratch. 
and we still have a good uh, good relationship. The boy might have a good relationship with him. What do I do? How do mm -hmm. I kind of, how do I raise my son? What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? He's got to be around other men. He needs a male role model. If the father's not doing it, get him into jujitsu or martial arts or a rites of passage group or something like that. Just find a strong male role model. It might be her brother. It might be the grandfather. You know, whatever it is, just get him a male role model. I'm a huge believer in martial arts because I'm of that, you know, the warrior cast. I like that. You know, if he likes to go camping, find someone for him to go camping with and out into nature. But he has to get a strong male role model. It's it's almost like you're going to write your son's future if you don't do it. And it's super important for them to do that, I believe. Right. What's your deepest desire desire is an interesting one i see desire as i have something i don't want or i want something i don't have right so for me desire is like a strange place to sit because it generates attachment and it's usually a pursuit of pleasure to get away from pain so ultimately what i want in the world is to have no clients and people sort of go, what? And the reason why I say that is because, you know, I work with the mind. That's my specialty and through language. And if I've got no clients, it means that everyone's healed. And so when we talk about the psychology industry or the therapy industry, whatever it is, I call myself a therapist simply because it gives people greater access to me. So it's like, oh, he's a therapist. Maybe he can help me. But I, I work more in the world of language and physics rather than anything else. And so why I say that is because if the psychology industry was that effective, it would have stopped existing 50 to 100 years ago because that whole generation would have stopped with their trauma and it wouldn't have continued down the line. I actually believe that it probably does more harm than good. And it's all about symptomatic approach and solving problems, which it doesn't really get anywhere. Right. So we have to go into the root cause. So my deepest wish for the world is for me to have no clients because then that would mean that everyone's been healed and then we'd be living in a pretty beautiful world, I'd say, as a byproduct of that. It's pretty nice desire to have. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one, but, you know, aim for it. Um, you know, throw in a little careful question. There's a couple of privileged white men who opinion, mm -hmm. whose opinion on this is irrelevant. What are your thoughts on transgender women competing against biological women in sport? I think it's fucking ridiculous. I think, uh, I think it's absolutely absurd. And um, I just think like, you know, we've gone to this point which started with the feminist movement, which was we demand equality, right? But we're demanding equality from the people that think that we're not equal, which only reinforces the fact we're not equal in the first place. So it doesn't get anywhere. And then, you know, that movement and how it's progressed is trying to conquer and dominate men, males. So they're doing the very thing to men that they've been blaming men for doing to them for a long time. And that doesn't mean that how women have been treated is okay. But now there's the equality thing there. And it's like, okay, well, I call myself a, a woman and we want equality. But in this case, it's, you know, it's unfair or it should be placed to the extremes like this. I mean, for me, and I don't care if someone, whatever someone wants to identify with, 
go for it. Like I don't lose any sleep over it. My concern is for the generation of children that are coming up in a world where they're getting to choose their own gender at five, six, seven years old, and then taking puberty blockers or hormone modifiers in order to get in with the crowd. I mean, we're a similar age. How much did we do to fit in when we were eight, 10, 12, 13 years old? You know, we get an undercut haircut or we'd wear clothes to fit in or skateboard or fake tattoos or whatever. Like, imagine if like, you know, we're at school now and we're eight years old and we're best mates and it's like, Nick, I'm going to take puberty blockers because I want to be a girl, you know, or like I want to be a kettle or a fishing rod or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's creating a scene of just this of disastrous proportions where people, children, that do not have the logical reasoned awareness to be able to make decisions of such gravity and it's being placed into them. You know, and kindergarten teachers deciding what gender they, they should be and how that should be handled. You know, I had a conversation with a mate. This was about eight years ago now, seven years ago, eight years ago. And his teacher was pushing for their son to be medicated on antidepressants. All he had was a problem with his eyesight. So he'd see double lines, right? So he developed a learning disability from that. It's not a, it shouldn't even say learning disability. What it was, was an inability to cognitively process based on an optical issue. That was it. They did some eye exercise and it was exercise and it was fine. But what's happening is we're seeing this more and more transference of power to the state, especially teachers who are not qualified to be talking about this stuff at all. You know, they're a maths teacher or an English teacher or a simple subjects meant for young people that haven't been out in the world. And they're able to help them make decisions around their sexuality. You know, I think it's, I think it's utterly ridiculous. And I think that, you know, men walking around in women's costumes with all their stuff hanging out and then expecting it to be called equality, I just think it's fucking ridiculous and the world's going mad. And I, I don't think it should be allowed under any stretch. And that's my opinion on it. If you don't like it, like it, I don't care. But that's my opinion on it, man. <laughs> I've, I've often thought, imagine when we were around the age of 12, like, you know, I wanted to be an emo at some point. Mm -hmm. Imagine permanently getting decided you want to be a fucking emo because that's just the phase that you're going through. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, I wanted to be hippie. And it's like, oh, thank fuck I'm, I grew out of that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, I've had this conversation with, with women who are very much like, this is utterly ridiculous. Like yeah. now men, now the patriarchy is fucking encroaching on women in their own field and men are beating us at doing our own thing. Like there's, there are yeah. trans women who have voted women of the year for doing yeah. nothing for doing nothing extraordinary yeah yeah nothing at all like caitlin jenner yeah. <laughs> you know like what the what the fuck happened there i mean like it's if you look at it from joe rogan spoke about it i mean he drove into the back of someone and killed them i think and then all of a sudden he's woman of the year on vanity fair or whatever that magazine is i mean we're pushing a line of obscurity which is really this inverted attitude towards nature right? Nature doesn't really do this. I had one woman argue with me about sparrows having five genders. 
But from the research that I did, and I can't remember this, and it was about eight months ago, and she was like, sparrows have five genders, but it's like, they'll still go from male to female or female to male. They'll transition, but it's still based in male-female characteristics. So there's a difference between sex and gender. And I think that's the dangerous part of it is that sex is dualistic and biological, but people are wrapping it up under these ideological social constructs, which are fucking made up. Like they're made up. Like, let's not get it twisted. They are fucking made up. And to go into that and say, oh, well, I'm a Ziza Zim demon or whatever. And now I want to swim in the Olympics against women. And I'm six foot four and 110 kilos with twice the bone density of the women I'm competing against. I mean, it's, it's, it's utterly ridiculous and it's going to come crashing down pretty soon. I think. Mm. Yeah. I, I think one of the major problems is this, the, the dissolution of the terms, male, female, man, woman, masculine, feminine. Yeah. Because they all mean different things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to say men can have babies and you're a bigot if you say it's different. So well, it's just fucking wrong. Like, yeah. It, it, do, it does not make any sense. You can identify as male, but mm-hmm. you're still a woman that's, that's yeah. pregnant. Yeah. So I, th- I think there's, that is one of the biggest issues is just this miss or this misunderstanding or this confusion between the actual definitions. Totally. Well, man and woman is biological, male, female is gender-based and then, um, you know, masculine, feminine is energetic. So I, that, I totally agree with you, mate. And that the masculine feminine thing is never going to change. And it's no. like, it's like saying, yeah, well, the battery is positive and negative, but actually, you know, let's mix it up a little bit and just get rid of it. It's like, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah, it's just, it's exactly. It's like possible. binary code zeros and ones left right black white light dark everything's dualistic in our universe we can only know our our world through opposites you know hot requires cold Mm. in order to know what the experience of cold is because it's like you know depression you know if people say i'm depressed as an example well, that's not true. That's a lie, right? You might have the experience of depression, but you only know the experience of depression by virtue of not having it. You know, so you need the opposite in order to understand it. You can only know hot by knowing cold. If there was just cold, you wouldn't even know it was cold because it would be a natural state and hot wouldn't exist, right? So everything's just in this dualistic nature. It's, it's two, zeros and ones, positive, negative, masculine, feminine. It doesn't matter how you wrap it up it's always dualistic and to go down this, I don't know how many genders there are, whether it's 160 or a thousand or 500, I don't care really, but it's just, it's made up, you know, you can't fight the laws of nature. Let's move on. Yep. What's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) what are you most afraid of? Oh, I used to be really afraid of death. But since I reconciled that, because we go through multiple deaths anyway, I think my greatest fear would be not accomplishing what I set out to accomplish. And I move more in the world like I don't really have a lot of fears. So I'm sort of even compensating for this question just for the viewers to have an insight into me. 
but it would be not achieving what I believe that I can achieve in this world. You know, I've got huge plans, big ambitions, but I think that would be it, unrealized potential. And I think really what it is, is when I look at that point of unrealized potential, and I wrote about this the other day is, you know, the main regret of the dying is saying, I wish I'd loved more. And that's what I want to bring into the world in those moments where, you know, I might have conflicts with my partner and I, I've lost a day or two or something like that by the tension between us or whatever it is, where it's like, it's that sometimes we lose that capacity to love in order to be right about something. Really, I don't want to get to, you know, the end of my life if I know that I'm fading out or whatever and I'm sick or, you know, on my deathbed at 90 or 100 or whatever. And I'm sitting there saying, man, I wish I loved more. That's probably my greatest fear is reaching that point and also not reaching my, what I believe is my potential. But we know the biggest thing, the hungry ghosts that haunt us the most are our regrets. And I don't want to be exiting this life, whether that's in six months or 60 years saying, damn, I wish I'd loved more. And I wish I wasn't, you know, so caught up in my own inability to say sorry sometimes to not empathize with the person that's hurting and I need to be right or something like that. So it's really like that. That's probably my greatest fear is, you know, being on my deathbed in regret, wishing I'd loved more. How do you know if you've reached your potential? It's a good question. Um, I think you get to a point and I was, I had one of these moments last year and I was in Bondi and I was lying on my bed and I was just blank. There's no thoughts. I was just in utter peace. Hmm. And it just kind of hit me. And I went, oh, I've, I, I've, oh, I've like resolved everything from my childhood. And it was just this moment of clarity. And so for me, that frame of reference around that potential was my thing was to heal everything I'd been through. And when I hit it at this point, I realized, that that version of me had then reached its potential. So there'll be different versions that require different levels of potential. And that's always going to change and shift and all that sort of stuff. So in that moment, I knew that I'd reached my potential and my capacity for healing what I'd set out to do. And now there was a new version of that that was going to be born of which the byproduct will be a different type of potential. Solid answer. Yeah. So I think it's just this utter clarity this deep clarity that you have and you go oh i'm here and i didn't even know that i was here unless you've got the awareness to understand that hmm. all right second part of that question what is it you're creating right now what i'm creating is i want to really help men step into the world and be able to hold sacred space for women mentally emotionally financially sexually as well and I think it's really important because I'm working with a lot of men at the moment that are sexually traumatized, that have been sexually traumatized. And what I, because my first part of my work for the first few years was all women. I, I've never worked with men in the first two years and they were all had sexual trauma. So what that turned into was women that were able to access sexual and creative energy so they can improve their relationship. Now it's about helping to dissolve the trauma and the barriers that are within men at these deep levels to eliminate that so then they can hold sacred space for their women 
And then they can start to come together in this union, like a safe union where sexuality is not just about using someone else to masturbate you and get off, but rather it's about in the union of making love together so it can be a co-creative process and to help men get that out of the way and to stop objectifying women. That's a big thing for me, like that hunger that a lot of men sort of demonstrate where you can't even sit having a coffee with someone without them kicking you under the table going, look at this one, look at this one. You know, it's more about appreciating the beauty that the feminine brings into the world and really honoring that. And that's not, you know, the nice guy thing that I, we were talking about earlier. It's more about the, the honoring of it. So women don't need to be so masculine and be protective of themselves and be worried about, you know, develop being with a man that's going to try and conquer, dominate and control her and be needy and explosive and unstable and irrational. I want to create a strong sense of virtue virtue and groundedness in men so they can hold safe space at the deepest level sexually emotionally intellectually intelligently for a woman by virtue of the fact that they know themselves well and they don't have the energetic barriers in the way of that mm. so that's what i'm creating at the moment beautiful i think one of the greatest uh gifts the world could receive is the sexual, the true sexual education of boys. And yeah, you know, 12 years old and up, this is sexual energy. This is what it is. This is what it can do. This is the power of it. And this is how to cultivate it. Mm -hmm. Because most, you know, most men have fucking no idea. And it builds yeah. up in their genitals yeah. and they need to release it. And it builds up and they need to release it. Mm -hmm. And then it, it just, it stirs. Sex is such a fucking taboo in society. Yeah. Like I was in India with my wife and we we're lying on the beach. There was nobody around. And these fucking four men, like late 40s, come up with their mobile phones from like hundreds of meters away. They come up filming. And it's like, what the fuck is going through your head when you think that that's okay? Yeah. But they've just, they're in a society where, you, you know, you can't look at women, you can't fucking, everybody, it's just, there's this really disconnected part of the masculine psyche and, mm -hmm. a, and a misunderstanding, just a lack of awareness around our sexuality. Yeah. And I think to teach that to teenagers is a, a really, powerful thing because then you won't have to heal the men or you won't yeah. have to heal the women that are on the receiving end of broken men yeah yeah and i like that's a great point you know there's this animalistic aspect to it which is celebrated through porn as well and that's a really it's a male dominated thing and i mean we could, I mean, I could do a whole podcast on even just spiritual interference from like, you know, lower astral realms and things like that, that gets involved and starts to, you know, interfere with people's, you know, contracts and their spirit and their psyche and all that sort of stuff, which hijacks them. But I won't go into that right now because it's a bit too esoteric, really. And if we want to do it, we can like on another podcast. But men are driven by this hunger through, you know, which is supported through women objects in society 
and they're basically there to satisfy them sexually. So when they start watching porn and you would know this, it changes our hormonal response, our chemical response in our body. And then men need more and more extreme versions of it, women too, um, in order to get off. And so we're seeing like, and I've worked with erectile dysfunction a lot. And what happens is when men are watching porn all the time, that starts to become their usual normal aspect. And so they, it's very unhealthy because they think that they're supposed to be with this, you know, stunningly hot woman that will just do anything they want without cultivating anything. And it's quite rough. You know, I've worked with a lot of women that they'll have a sexual experience with a man and it's extremely rough, not what they asked for. And then they disassociate and then they basically have a rape experience, even though they consented. The amount of women I've worked with where that's happened to is just shocking. And where a man thinks that that's okay, it's just, it's atrocious that a man would even do that, you know? And I would work with women and men and the average like sexual encounter is six to 11 minutes. And I'm like, you should be kissing for 30 to 45 minutes. Like have a three or four hour lovemaking session. Like that's what I do with my partner. If it's like one hour, it's quick, you know? And so most men don't know how to take the time to cultivate the energetic container and the spaciousness there to touch a woman softly and slowly and gently in the way that she wants. She wants it to be rough, great, you guys can do that, but from a consensual nature, not based on what you see in porn. And so like that on the beach, that's a complete boundary violation. It's a complete desecration of the feminine just by going up and going, oh my God, I don't know anything different. And you're 100% right is that sexual energy and sex education doesn't need to be from a biological perspective. Sure, that's part of it. But the energetic, emotional perspective from it is super important. You know, it's, it's spirit descending, which is involution, and, and physical ascending, which is evolution. And it's supposed to meet in the heart to create a combined experience of co-creation in the energy of love. That's what sex is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this, you know, and sure, you can do it five to six minutes. And there's times where that might be great for you and your partner if it's in the right container. But for the most part, we're seeing, I read this article, which was shocking, where there were these 11 boys that got lined up and a nine-year-old and 11-year-old girls, two girls performed oral sex on all of them because they saw that in porn. Nine and 11 years old, these girls were, and these boys were 11 and to 13 or 14 or something like that. Like... I, I, I couldn't even comprehend that when I was, you know, 11 years old. I was too busy skateboarding and watching skateboarding videos and getting an undercut and stuff like that and trying to be cool skateboarding. For them to be doing that, it shows where it's going and how damaging it can actually be. And it's, it's pretty shocking that that sort of extreme behavior is happening in our society. And it's really unhealthy. I was working in an office, you know, 10 years ago now and the boss's daughter was there and she was 10 and she was with a friend and I was at my desk and they were kind of they were trying to get my attention but kind of playing a little bit cool and at some point they're on the the iPad and I took the iPad to see what they were doing and what they were giggling about and there was hardcore porn on the iPad and they were 10 it's like there's yeah it's it's a very very dark and twisted downward spiral that we're on um yeah and yeah short of recreating how we educate 
kids. It's uh, it's just you know your dream of no clients is going to be a fucking very long way away. Yeah, well, keep me busy, but you know, I mean, and that's the shocking nature of it, you know. And this is where strong male role models coming in for people is really important, you know, because they won't allow that stuff to happen and they'll guide them in a way and educate them that's really important for that stuff to hopefully be mitigated and at best eliminated. What's an uncomfortable truth about you? I spent time in prison when I was 18, 19. Yeah. So I was grew up in a pretty difficult environment and I was involved in a string of offenses, which led to one more extreme one. And, you know, where I got into a fight and I hurt a guy really badly and it was just, there was too many and I was on good behavior bonds and then periodic detention. And I was just still constantly like, breaking the law, not giving a fuck because I was really wild um, and spent seven months in prison for it. And I guess it's probably not an uncomfortable truth, but it's a truth about me that I don't speak about too much um, simply because, you know, it's, you know, 20 odd years ago now that it happened, but nevertheless, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I remember I was in the yard as they call it. And I was walking with a guy and he said to me, he goes, ah, don't worry, mate, you'll be back. And I'd said to him, and I remember, and I said, there's two types of people that go to prison. There's the ones that always come back and the ones that never come back. And I said, I like you, but I'm fucking never coming back. And it was just that necessary event that needed to happen for me in order for me to change who I was. And, you know, my father was in prison when I was five to six as well. So it's, you know, it was no surprise that I ended up in there as well. You know, I didn't really have any healthy boundaries or anything like that growing up, you know, super wild, very rebellious, very defiant, but I was also very sensitive. I didn't really know how to process the anger that was going on inside of me. And that just got directed out into the world. So that's probably my uncomfortable truth, I think. Thanks for sharing, man. You're welcome. What's your most profound pain in this moment? Profound pain. My father at the moment's 85 and he's quite sick and he's fading out. And I was actually with him today and I saw him just sitting there and, you know, there's the concept of being spineless and imagine if your body is spineless, you know, like I say about men, strong spine, soft heart. And he was just kind of sitting there and he was like lumped over like this. And it's just, I didn't speak to them for three years up until eight months ago. And I needed to go and repair that relationship. And I've actually come down to Sydney, spent time with him for a month so I can really work on that relationship with him. And so that's the pain that I'm working through at the moment. And this is going back to the pain of regret, right? Is that I wish I had loved more. I wish I'd spent more time with the people that I care about. And I'd had this image in my head about them and I'd blame them for not loving me the way that I was demanding that they should. But what I realized I was doing was I actually wasn't loving them in the way that I should. So I was blaming them for doing to me what I was actually doing to them. And when I saw this, I was like, ah, you know, they've got to, you've got to demonstrate some sort of openness towards them. And now I'm watching him fade out. And the painful part about it is not having that three years that I could have spent with him developing a relationship. And that would have been beautiful practice for me because while they were both my greatest container for wounding, 
they also represent the greatest opportunity for healing because if I can love them, then I can love anyone. And so that's the cultivation of practice with that for me right now. And I've actually got a beautiful relationship with them now. And it's, it's actually, it's beautiful, but it's like this brutal, but ephemeral nature of relationships where they come in and they transition and they change. And my pain at the moment is to sit with me being okay with the fact that I couldn't make any other choice for those three years and to make up for that now, wishing that I'd spent more time with them. Hmm. So I've spoken to you before about your pain with your parents. So it's nice to hear that that's where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. When was the last time you were out of integrity? Today. I said I was going to go to the gym and I didn't. <laughs> that's a simple one. Um, probably a big one um let me think about this probably yeah look my my partner wanted to do wants to do is doing seven months of uh celibacy at the moment and my initial reaction to that was well i'm not doing that with you and it was kind of a bit of a like mild reaction and we had a scrap over it and it wasn't that she wanted to do that. It was the way in which she approached it, which was via text message out of nowhere. And she has a habit of doing that to me, dropping big things in text message and saying, instead of saying, hey, look, there's something that's come up. You know, it's important. Can we talk about it? It's just kind of like, you know, hey, morning, like, hope you're good, like, miss you, blah, blah, blah. By the way, you know, I need to do 210 days of celibacy. I'm like, what the fuck like that, you know? And so... Um, my, the way I was out of integrity was that was to go, well, I'm not doing that with you. Like, you know what? Like, that's ridiculous. We're in a union. Like, what are you talking about? Like, and that's probably where I was out of integrity. Cause I should have stepped away for a minute and I should have said, well, what does this mean? And inquired into it. Like, how would you envisage doing this? How, how are we going to move through this? And that was probably the real last time I was out of integrity for what I expect from myself. There are two types of answers to that question. One is the truth and it's typically today or yesterday. And then mm -hmm. the other one is some fucking lauded thing of like, oh yeah, three weeks ago. It's like, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it's all the time, you know what I mean? Like, like you said, it's either today, or yesterday, or it's, or it's three weeks ago. And I was like, well, the honest answer is I said I was going to go to the gym and I didn't for the minor one. But the big one was uh, a week and a half ago that happened. Mm. No, a week ago, a week and one day. So I was out of integrity there by saying a week and a half ago. <laughs> and this is the thing, like we are all out of integrity in some way all the time. And yep. like, it's no, it's just having the awareness of it and trying to get back into it. And there's no fucking denying it. It's not going to help anyone, especially not yourself. Yeah. And Don Miguel Ruiz in the four agreements, the first one is be impeccable with your word. And I say to yeah. people, the only way you'll be fully impeccable with your word is to realize you'll never be fully impeccable with your word. Hmm. You know, you can't be, you just can't, you can do your best, but you can't be 100% there. When was the last time you cried in front of someone else? In front of someone else? 
would have been my partner. But I, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it, I mean, it was this year. Um, but I just, we're in the last couple of months. Um, and it was around my dad. It was around my dad. Um, definitely. Um, yeah, I can't remember an exact date, to be honest, mate. Um, but it was this year for sure. And it was around my dad with her and just opening up to her about that. Beautiful. What would you love for men to know with every fiber of their being? That masculinity is fucking healthy. It's healthy. Embrace it. Embody it. Like I did a post a little while ago, actually, and I was in the sort of polarity aspect. I'm like, it's funny that, you know, when men get angry, it's labeled as toxic masculinity. But when women rage, it's just their divine feminine oracle coming out. And it's like anger and rage are the same thing. They're just time-based, right? Anger is present, which is I'm angry now. Rage is accumulated anger, which has been suppressed. And then it expresses itself in the form of this sort of, you know, much more extreme reaction. And so it's like, you know, why is it up to us? Why are we not allowed to get angry? Because it's under the guise of toxic masculinity. But when a woman rages, it's like, you know, I saw this post and I wrote about it because, and I use it a lot, that it said, test him a thousand times, then test him a thousand times more. And I'm like... That's once a day for six years that a woman's testing. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> like once a day for six years. Like if you tested me once a day for six days, I'd be off it. I'd be like, I'm out of here. Like this is, you know, but it's a, and then it's an excuse to almost encourage unhealthy behavior of like bipolar and things like that, because it's, it's not necessary. But if there's one thing I can get to men, it's that masculinity is healthy, right? The absence of masculinity is toxic masculinity. That's what I see anyway. And, you know, to move into your practices, which encourage that through being, you know, your breath work and your meditations and to become embodied and to become stable and solid, work through your stuff, work through your childhood trauma, find a men's group, whatever you need to do, that's fine. But that masculinity is healthy and if we don't have it, what's the, what's the saying? It's like masculine democracy, democracies over time give way to feminine democracies and feminine democracies gives way to tyranny. And it's really important that we have strong men embracing their masculinity and being an example for the generation because it's like good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, right? And we're in the sort of transition at the moment of going into hard times, create strong men, which is brilliant, but masculinity is healthy. That's what I want every man to know with every fiber of my being. Masculinity is extremely healthy. Jordan Peterson has a quote. And if you think tough men are dangerous, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, we look at it and we call it this patriarchy, right? But if we look at the quality of the men that are actually in the patriarchy, they're extremely feminized, right? They're white-haired, they're fat, they're overweight, they're unstable, they want to conquer and dominate and they're erratic and all these politicians, they just argue against each other. They're like, they're like women, 
right? Like, that's what they're like. So it's like, is the patriarchy the actual problem? Because we look at just the term patriarchy, it just means men at the top. That's it. Whereas men are at the top, but they're these weak, feminized men. And I agree with Jordan Peterson. It's like, and he has another quote, which is, um, uh, what is it? A, a good man is a dangerous man that has it under control. Hmm. You know, a good man, sorry, what is that? A good man is not a dangerous man or something like that. I can't remember, but it's, a, it's in a similar vein. And the weak men are the ones that want to conquer, dominate and control. It's the have-nots want to take from the haves, right? And we look at the ones that get the most offended and the ones that want to impose their will on others are usually the weakest. Like you see someone walking down the street and they're starting a fight or something like that. That's because that guy's scared because you get the really calm people and the calm person just goes, I'm not interested in this. Let's walk away. You know, they're very stoic. They're very calm. They're very grounded. You know, that's the one thing that jujitsu taught me was it, it taught me how not to fight. And one of the things that I learned, I went into grapple one day and I wasn't wearing like the kimono where your belt color is there. And, you know, I've got lots of tattoos and I was more muscled up at the time. And I was like, saw this older guy, he would have been in his fifties. And I took my shirt off and I'm like, yeah, cool. Let's roll. This dude tapped me like 55 times or 60 times in five minutes. Here's a brown belt. And if I was walking down the street, I was going, mate, I'll take this guy. And I was just a fresh blue belt at the time. And this guy schooled me, absolutely schooled me. And it was in that moment I said, wow, this guy is a dangerous man. He's pretty much a black belt. And he owned me. And so he was a good man because he's a dangerous man that had it under control. But the weak man is the one that's going to want to conquer, dominate, exercise power over others because they're scared. And to me, I, I totally agree with Jordan Peterson in that, in that quote. You speak a lot of high-value men. Can you define the difference between a high-value man and kind of the alpha male? Hi. So the alpha male the, from the traditional aspect is that they need a hierarchy in order to control. So they need like, well, beta males and subordinates that they can control. Whereas I see the high-value man as more like the what's classed as the sigma male. There's different, you know, definitions of it. But the sigma male is kind of the threat to the alpha male because it doesn't need to control anyone or doesn't need anyone underneath it to get a sense of importance where the alpha in traditional terms does. Whereas I think the high value man, my definition of it, what I look at is a man that has, makes a living for himself and that has a moderate amount of financial success. And John Wineland says this, he goes, the first thing a man should do is in his exact words, a make a fucking living. Because if you can't do that, you, you pretty much can't do anything else because you won't commit to yourself. And another, and it's a man that's worked through a lot of his childhood trauma or working through it, is conscious to his awareness and patterns, um, is on point, on purpose, looks after his body. And I mean, one of the other definitions is if they don't have kids in the background or a broken ex-wife relationship, if you've got all of those and you work for yourself and you've got the ability to move and be free, you're in like less than 1% of men out there. And a high value man knows his own worth, whereas an alpha will probably try to establish his worth by dominating others and being, you know, bigger, louder and rowdier. Like we see guys like Cobra Tate. I don't know if you've seen him around. He's kind of this new guy that's emerged on the scene. And he's kind of like a bit of a shady gangster that's cashing in on IG and he's like, you know, 
the whole spinning plates thing that was brought out in the red pool community that alphas do, um, which is like have a rotation of women going on at all times. I don't really see that stuff as alpha. That's pretty easy to do if you want to do it. And so I see the high value man as someone more like the gentleman that knows his worth, that's doing good things in the world, that is virtuous, that has integrity, that knows himself and goes, no, I don't need to do that kind of stuff for validation. Whereas the alpha in the traditional sense, like I said, is going to need multiple women around, is going to need to dominate betas and subordinates and have men underneath him in order to gain his own sense of significance, which is actually, in my world, a sense of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. So that's where I see the definition between between the two. All right. Last question. If you could carry one memory with you from this life into the next, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I remember what it was like. One of my deep constraints in the mind was a fear of loss. And when I linked up my pattern to that, I saw the world in a completely different way. And it was just like something had come off me. It was the most profound moment of my life. And I've done ayahuasca, I've done mushrooms, I've done medicine journeys, I've done breathwork journeys, I've done all of them and had these, you know, super profound and you know what, it's like visual experiences. But I remember when I was going through a breakup and I couldn't understand why I was attracting the same type of person in again and again and again and I remember my fear of loss was generating this idea that someone would leave me and so I'd have to attract women in that would leave me in order for me to see this constraint and when I saw it it was like my mind just went bam and it was like this explosion and I started sizzling with energy that lasted for five days and it was just like it, everything I saw it was like when Neo wakes up right and he's like why do my eyes hurt morpheus says because you've never used them before and it was just this moment of expanded awareness of my whole being it was like the chains exploded off me and i was just free and i've haven't ex i've experienced minor ones like that but never like that and it was this most profound sense of freedom where i just melted into everything and i could feel the connectedness to absolutely everything to everyone and I was free from this constraint in my mind. And it was, it was so physical, it was so visceral, it was really emotional and just this like reconnection to myself came through. And it was still to this day, the most profound awakening moment of my life. So it would be, it'd be that. But even though that's probably what we feel when we get liberated from the body and death anyway. So I'm like, bring it on, let's do it again. But that's the moment I'll never forget. <laughs> Helpful. All right, brother. How can people find you? What have you got on offer? So Instagram's probably the best way, which is at Pure Jaguar. Uh, my website is jaguarheart.co. Um, I just, man, like any man that's struggling with masculinity, with sexual trauma, any deep trauma, I like to work in the worlds of, you know, more of the intense, heavy stuff. You know, I've worked with satanic ritual abuse survivors, things like that, sort of the the darker world that most therapists don't really want to go near or touch. That's the stuff I want to liberate men from. So if there's men out there that are struggling with addiction, um, masculinity problems, relationship problems, anything that's in the intense world, like come to me so I can help them with that. That's what I want to help them with. Legend. All right, Jack. It's, uh, it's been a beautiful conversation, mate. Thank you so much. 
Thanks, brother. I appreciate you and thank you for the platform, man. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.